And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, The Haunted House Not a window was broken And the paint wasn't peeling Not a porch step sagged Yet there was a feeling that beyond the door and into the hall, this was the house of no one at all. No one who breathed, nor laughed, nor ate, nor said I love, nor said I hate. Yet something walked along the stair, something that was and wasn't there. And that is why weeds on the path grow high. And even the moon races fearfully by. For something walks along the stair. Something that is and isn't there. As you can tell from the opening, this is our October podcast and we have Halloween on our minds. Welcome, everyone. It's Podcast 48 and the first episode of our fifth season. That is hard to believe. Yes, it is. Well, Frank, what do we have for everyone tonight? Well, a lot, actually. We got inspired by our Telly Savalas ghost story last episode. So tonight we have more celebrity true ghost stories, as well from some of us. Then we have a little bit of John Carradine and Vincent Price discussing the early history of horror films. And then a tribute to Charlie Gamora, the great makeup artist and gorilla suit man. We also have a short interview with Boris Karloff and some questions answered by Rod Sterling. We have an uncharacteristically disturbing tale also from Ray Bradbury. Then, of course, another pretentious reading from Scholastic Books and plenty of other tricks and treats. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started. Some kids just love to play with dolls or put on funny hats. And some make pets of birds and fish and dogs and alley cats. That's not the way I like to play. I'm tired of all these. I need a very special friend. Won't you help me, please? I want a monster to be
he's bigger than me. I was aware of Charlie Gamora when I was a kid. Some of the 70s monster fan magazines mentioned his name as the gorilla suit guy who made his own costumes. But I didn't begin to understand the breadth of his talent and skill until I went to a lecture on the history of makeup effects in my early 30s. The speaker was the master himself, Rick Baker, and his talk covered the art from the silent films right up to the 1990s. And part of that conversation was about Mr. Gamora. But not just as an ape actor, but also as a makeup artist in his own right. An innovator pushing the boundaries of makeup and costume. This fascinated me. So I began to look more into Charlie Gamora's life. Sadly, there wasn't much available information. Mostly quotes from Bob Burns, an ape suit man himself, who knew Charlie. His stories told of a talented man from the Philippines who could sculpt and paint. A man who got into the movie business in the silent era and worked right up to the 1960s. Charlie hadn't just made ape suits, but other costumes as well, like the Martian from War of the Worlds. He was liked and respected by everyone, but he had faded somehow into the mist of time. Then amazingly, in 2016, a documentary was made of his life. Jason Barnett, an artist in the makeup effects business, made a definitive look into Charlie Gamora's life. A detailed love letter for all of us fans. His amazing life was now opened for all of us to see. So tonight, using all this information, I'm going to speak a little bit about Charlie Gamora, my tribute to someone who is more than just a great ape man. Charlie was born Carlos Cruz Gamora in 1903 in the Philippine island of Negros. His early life was one of privilege. Gamora's father was a rich man, and all 18 of his children got good education and a life full of luxuries. Perhaps it was at this time that Charlie took art lessons. It's hard to say. But all this ended when Gamora's father died. Although he had left each of his children substantial acreage, the eldest brother took control of all the assets. He even coerced his mother into giving up her rights. Charlie would have none of this. And even though he was a child, he ran away with some other kids to Manila. There he lived on the streets doing what he could to survive. One sure form of income was diving for pennies thrown by the incoming ships in the bay. Manila was as dangerous then as it is now, and one night Charlie got his throat cut by someone with a knife. He was taken to a doctor who contacted the eldest brother who came for Charlie. The brother wasn't taking any chances this time and had Charlie placed in a monastery there to stay until he was old enough to sign away his land. Charlie was nine years old. One of his least favorite duties was to set up with the dead the night before the funeral. It was called the Death Watch. One night, when he was 15, the corpse he was watching set straight up. Charlie knew this was from rigor mortis, but he had enough. Gamora snuck out and went back to Manila. 
Once there, he began to draw portraits of the sailors on the dock, for money and to give him a chance to beg them to stow him away to America. This finally paid off, and two sailors smuggled him aboard a ship that was heading to California. Charlie couldn't believe his luck. Somewhere on the voyage, a pressure valve got stuck, and because of the close quarters where it was, a small person was needed to do the wrenching to open it. The two sailors ran and got Charlie, and he promptly went and opened the valve. (laughs) Because of this service, the captain overlooked his stowing away and gave him the run of the ship, and even smuggled him past customs when they got to port. Charlie then went right to work. First, he picked crops in Northern California in the fields and orchards. One of the employers was so impressed that when the job was done, he wrote Charlie a letter of recommendation. Gamora took this letter to Southern California, where he got more jobs picking on farms and washing bottles off her dairies. Universal at the time was hiring loads of people for all sorts of jobs. Charlie, along with hundreds of others, got jobs as an extra at the studio. Soon he was also doing stunt work, doubling mostly for children because of his size. In his downtime at the studio, Charlie would sketch scenery and portraits. Because they were so good, he was soon discovered by the art department, who brought him over to their area. Once there, it was discovered that this teenager could also sculpt. He seemed to be a natural. So he was put to work on the team that was recreating the statues for the facade of Notre Dame for the Hunchback. Charlie's work ethic, attitude, and talent impressed everyone who met him. That was very true for the wig makers and makeup artists Percy and Ernest Westmore, who took the boy under their wings and taught him their trade. Charlie became friends with the Westmore clan and spent many happy hours with them on his off time. George Westmore was the head of the clan and a friend of Lon Chaney. It was through this connection that Gamora was given a chance to assist Chaney for his Phantom of the Opera makeup. Imagine helping the master of the day and seeing firsthand some of his techniques. At the same time, Charlie was also part of the team who was sculpting figures for the Paris Opera House for the Phantom movie. Over the years, Charlie did a lot of hair and makeup work, mostly beauty makeup and wounds and scarring and character makeup and old age makeup, etc. One of the jobs he was most proud of was the middle age and old age makeups he did on Barbara Stanwyck for The Great Man's Lady in 1942. He was known as a solid artist who could be counted on to do a great work. Back in 1925, the fates brought Charlie to the Lost World Project. He was tasked to make the head for the ape-man suit, but he ended up making the whole costume. He wasn't completely happy about the suit, and he certainly wasn't happy with the actor's portrayal of the ape-man. So when he had a chance to do another gorilla suit, Charlie pushed himself on its manufacture and made sure that he played the ape this time. That film was The Leopard Lady in 1928. This suit had extra arm extensions and other tricks to change Charlie's body into a gorilla. It also had a better mouth movements. People loved it. So much so that he got four more Aprils that year and eight more the next year. Charlie Gamora made around seven gorilla suits during his career and acted them almost every time that they were used. Each one was an improvement on the one that came before. His best is usually considered to be Sultan from the Phantom of the Rue Morgue, made in 1954. It actually had water bladders in various parts of the body, including the chest and belly, to imitate fat. I really liked his gorilla suit from the Chimp in 1932, though. Charlie didn't just do gorilla suits, though. He did a bear suit and had a great chimp suit for the road to Morocco, 
and a hilarious Bob Hope mask that he put on a real chimp for the road to Bally. There was also the iconic robot-looking suit for Colossus of New York. Then there was the Martian from War of the Worlds. That costume he had to rebuild just the night before its first shoot. George Powell and everyone loved the first suit, but thought it was too big. So Charlie went home to his private lab, and along with his daughter, salvaged pieces from the old suit and built a new costume in one night. The next day was brought to set, and the famous scene with Anne Robinson was filmed. Charlie took his suit acting very seriously. He would go down to the San Diego Zoo and study the gorillas and chimps for hours, internalizing their movements and behaviors. Probably his most successful use of this study was for a little bit of humbug called Ngagi. Ngagi means gorilla, read some posters. The most sensational picture ever filmed, read others. They were both probably wrong. Ngagi was a 1930 and therefore pre-code exploitation film. It was billed as an ethnological documentary, an expedition to the Belgian Congo by Sir Herbert Winstead and it purported to show a ritual where gorilla-worshipping natives sacrificed women to gorillas to be used as sex slaves. It was actually filmed mostly in L.A., with some stock footage added for luck. There is some nudity and hinting at gorilla-human love, but there's also a lot of footage of the forest and the gorillas in the wild as well. They filmed it all in natural light and were careful to keep a distance from the suit, with plenty of obscuring foolage in the way. Gamora's realistic betrayal of the gorilla's behavior really helped too, the way he walked on all fours and all kinds of subtle movements. The combination of all the film's elements really worked, and Gagi became a phenomenon and was embraced by popular culture. It made $4 million at the box office, and that was the beginning of the Depression, but its influence went beyond those who could see it. Ngagi was known by the general public and ended up in jokes and other films and people's conversations. But there were skeptics right from the beginning. When one African native was recognized as an actor from Central Casting, the Motion Picture Association of America ordered Congo Pictures, the producer of Ngagi, to cease all exhibiting of the film, claiming that most of the footage was shot in L.A. Congo Pictures sued back. Photoplay Magazine discovered a lawsuit against the producer from one of the actors in Ngagi. Gamora was approached, naturally, being the gorilla suit guy, but at first denied everything. Eventually, under pressure, he admitted that he was in the gorilla suit. It took until 1933, but the Federal Trade Commission demanded that Ngagi could no longer be portrayed as a factual film. Charlie Gamora became famous after the incident for a while, the only time in his life that this happened. In the early 30s, Charlie moved to Paramount's makeup department where Wally Westmore, another one of the clan, was. There, in 1932, he joined the team working on the Island of the Lost Souls. This movie provided a wonderful playground for his ingenuity. All the great beast men. He designed and applied many of their makeups, and also appeared as a gorilla man. I don't know if you've all seen the movie, but the creatures in it are disturbing. Some are like malformed people with slight animalistic features. Others are like nightmares. The scene where they all come after Dr. Moreau finally shows them close up, and here you can see a lot of wonderful designs by Gamora. It was also at Paramount in 1936 that Charlie worked on his most influential makeup process, foam latex. I don't know if anyone else was trying to whip up latex to make foam, but Charlie is believed to be the first one to use it for appliances. It came about with the movie The General Died at Midnight, 
The gelatin appliances for actor Akeem Tamaroff were found to be unsatisfactory. Charlie used his foam technique for the general, and they worked perfectly. From this small kernel, the technique spread. Gamora was always known for sharing his ideas, and this idea was used for movies from The Wizard of Oz to Planet of the Apes, and right up to the very day, where silicone is just barely eclipsing it. Charlie Gamora was an inventor of many things in his business and at his home. He made mechanical ants for the Charlton Heston's The Naked Jungle. He came up with non-staining fake blood, and a colorant for skin that wouldn't rub off easily. He used this for Sam Jaffe and Gunga Did, and when he had to make up a bunch of more people of the same process, he rigged up a sprayable version, got some lazy Susans, and spun the actors around, coloring them quickly. He even made himself a type of 3D TV. The man was amazing with his uncredited credits. They go on and on. He worked on The Grapes of Wrath, Midsummer Night's Dream, The Buccaneer, Reap the Wild Wind, A Place in the Sun, The Ten Commandments, Witness for the Prosecution, etc., etc. The man was also a portrait painter and sculptor to the stars. He formed his own movie company and produced the first Filipino color film to be shown in the Philippines. He created a Filipino theater company in Manila, and he opened the first drive-in and served the first soft-serve ice cream on the islands. He was a philanthropist on both the U.S. and the Philippines. Imagine what more he could have accomplished. But unfortunately, he died of a heart attack at the age of 58. He was working on the makeup for Jack the Giant Killer. Charlie was a very influential man without being famous. A great makeup man who shared what he knew with others. My favorite of his accomplishments, though, are still his gorilla suits. They were movie gorillas and wouldn't fool anyone who'd ever seen a real gorilla but they were beautiful and came alive with his acting and brought a lot of joy to me and other people. Carlos Cruz Gamora was a great father, artist, friend, and American. Maybe now that Jason Barnett's film is out, the rest of America will know it. Sun sits in the sky Compared 
traffic crumble. But give me half a chance and I'll be taken off my clothes and living in the jungle. Mr. John Carradine. John, lovely to see you again. Nice to see you, Vinny. Thank you. In a long time. It has been a long time. I think the last time we saw each other was in a film which, while it was not a horror film, was certainly a horror. Yes, it was a long one, that's for sure. John, you know, you have been connected with the classics and with horror films, but I think one of the fascinating things to go back into is... The, the background of horror in the theater. Tell us a little bit about it. It goes a long way back. Yes. I did one of those original horror plays on Broadway with Elizabeth Bergner. What was that? The Duchess of Malfi. Oh, John Webster. Her. The contemporary of Shakespeare. And the whole Jacobean theater actually was based on horror and revenge. And then, of course, uh, there's always a little touch of the grand guignol, too. Yes. Which helps a bit. <laughs> yes, it does. A few heads rolling on the floor. Never heard a picture before. <laughs> I think uh, one of the most fascinating ones was a surrealist film, really, that went way beyond its time. Uh, Twenty years later, you know, I met the man who played in it, Conrad Fight. He came up to the door one time to ask his way somewhere, and I nearly fainted. <laughs> it was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. <laughs> 
second one you saw, the first one you saw the first was... The one I saw was the Golan. Yes, tell us yeah. about that a little bit. I don't remember it very much. I was only about well, 14 years old. I remember it took place in Prague, in the uh, ghetto, and the man was made of clay, and that he was born to slay. I think that's what got me to go to the theater. He was made to help the situation, but then he turned on the people. The Golan, a real frightener. I think he was the first sort of robot character. Yes, he was. Yeah. And he wore the Star of David yes. on, on his shoulder. And you pushed it. You pushed it and he did things. Look at that face. Look at that face. Oh, there he is. What a superman. Yes. Didn't they push that star? On yes, no. He took the star off of him, you see? And then that killed him. And, uh, my Lord, people have been doing that to me for years. And we go forward. Yes. <laughs> With that headpiece on, he had to turn back. Tell us something about John Barrymore, who was a great friend of yours. I only met him once, and I've always been really jealous once? of you. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, he had his own sense of the macabre. Yes. He owned a vulture, which he bought in Chile or in Peru. Peru, I think it was. And he used to sit on a perch in his home up on Tower Road. Yeah. And they would sit together, nose to nose. <laughs> Barrymore thought it was love. Yeah. Until he went on the wagon, and then the vulture would have nothing to do with it. You see, it was his alcoholic breath the vulture relaxed. <laughs> I like that. He was a magnificent actor. His Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was uh, a, a performance I'll never forget. He wore no makeup. He did, wore no, no makeup, makeup at all. Only a wig. gave him a kind of conical head, but he didn't wear any makeup. It was all done by facial expression. Look, see, there he is now. He's taking the drink. <clears throat> I used to rehearse this when I was 12 years old. <laughs> With a glass of water and vinegar and some uh, soda bicarbonate, and foam up and take the potion and go through all the agony. Oh, I've been reading about Mansfield doing it. It's divine. Now, let's see what he does here. He really, the hands, of course, played an enormous part, didn't they? You know, he had short, stubby fingers, and he hated them. He was always dangling them so they'd look long and artistic. That's true, because you'd never know that, would you? It looks no, like the way he was tremendous, though. Look at the face. There's no makeup. No. The, uh, you know, so many of these pictures have been made and remade, uh, The Hunchback of uh, Notre Dame, and I think that we all remember, at least I remember, Cheney Sr. Well, that... And Lawton was marvelous, but it didn't have the I didn't see, I've not, never seen anyone do it but Cheney, and I don't think I want to. No, look at this fabulous scene where he's pushing that bell. You have a feeling of the weight. Ooh, I bet it yeah, was heavy. I bet it was, too. I, I remember working on that set years ago. Mary, is that Mary Philbin or Patsy Ruth Miller? That's who it was. Was that Patsy? Patsy Miller? Ruth Miller. She played Esmeralda. Or Mary Philbin, Philbin in uh, Phantom of the Opera. In the Phantom of the Opera, you had Rod LaRocque. And Rod LaRocque, yes. Yes. yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, boy. John, you played in quite a few horror films. No, it wasn't Rod LaRocque. It was Norman Carey. It was Norman Carey. Norman Carey. Yes, Carey, it yes, was, indeed. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, you and I have never played in a horror film together. No, and no. I've never played a monster. I never played a monster. I, yes, I was I offered I one and turned it down. Yeah. I turned down Frankenstein. Well, after doing... Boris took it. You're kidding. I turned it down. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Oh, that's... They sent me out to the makeup department, and the makeup man started mixing up a bowl of plaster, and Jack I, being Pierce. a sculptor, knew just what he was up to. Yeah. He made a life mask, and I said, wait a minute, what is this? What is this? Yeah. He said, this is... You, you play a monster. I said, oh, do I have any dialogue? He said, no. I don't have any dialogue. <laughs> no, you're just blunt. So, listen, 
not from me. And I walked out. Oh, dear. Three months later, they got Boris, and he took it. It did. Uh, it did I never regretted it, and he no. never ceased to regret it. But now, you and I did do something sort of vaguely in common. I did the second Invisible Man picture, The Invisible Man Returns. Yes. And uh, let's see. Now, you know, in talking about the other... I did a bit in the first one. In the first one, you I did. Played I played a Somersetshire yokel with a frowsy mustache, a muffler, and a bowler hat who goes to a phone booth and calls the police and says, I just saw the Invisible Man. <laughs> <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera was uh, played by several people, wasn't it? It was played by, let's see, of course, Lon Chaney Sr. to begin with. Well, I think that there's Mary Philbin, look, see? And she's going to take off the mask. Oh, I remember this. He's sitting at the organ. Yes, yes. Oh, and he turns around, and your blood turns cold. Oh, oh don't take it off, Mary. Don't. No, that's right. <laughs> no, don't, don't. Oh, she's going to do it. Thank you for honoring the Horror Hall of Fame with your presence. Well, then it's always an honor for me to be with you in Thank you. It's wonderful to see you again. And I'll have Zuckman show you to the door. Oh, never mind the door. I'll just seep through the wall. John? 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 It must have been terrifying. So many unexplainable things have happened here. There's something about the place. Your servants must have sensed it when they walked out on you. An apprehension of disaster. Sir Roderick's Song When the night wind howls in the chimney cowls And the bat in the moonlight flies And inky clouds like funeral shrouds Sail over the midnight skies When the footpads quail at the night bird's wail And black dogs bay at the moon Then is the spectre's holiday Then is the ghost's high noon and now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The Sentry Box San Cristobal Harbors has a mystery, that of the haunted sentry box. There are many sentry boxes there, sticking out like thumbs. Some have fancy balls on top, others have had theirs worn away. The sentry boxes are entered through narrow passages between the walls. From their slit windows, the lonely sentries can observe the sea and other approaches. There is one sentry box that has a hideous story. It is below the main part of the fortress and can be seen by looking down over one of the walls high above it. The coast runs west beyond it, and the gray bulk of the Moro Castle, another fortress, guards the entrance of San Juan Harbor in the distance. Many years ago, 
A sentry was sent to one of the boxes to keep watch over the sea. It was a lonely post, and none of the garrison wanted the job. But the man chosen could not disobey orders, and off the sentry went. Some hours later, another soldier was sent to relieve him. The sentry box was empty. There was only a pungent smell that filled the stone structure. What had happened to the sentry? Perhaps he had run away or had fallen in the water from the narrow walk between the low approach walls. There was no trace of him. Even his weapons had vanished. The disappearance was reported to his superior, who suspected that the soldier had just deserted. From a high point on the fortress walls, an officer watched the box, and the new sentry went on duty. For some hours, all was quiet in the box below. Then suddenly the officer heard a piercing ring out above the roar of the surf. He sprang to his feet for a better look and saw a bright light coming from the side of the tiny stone box. The light grew brighter and brighter until he could no longer look at it, and then it faded away. A black cloud of smoke issued then from the gun ports of the doorway of the sentry box and drifted out to sea. Then all was quiet. The officer gathered together a band of men, and they hurried up the slope to the open stone door. Inside was silence, for there was no one there. No trace of the second soldier remained, but the inside of the box was black with soot, and a strong odor of sulfur was thick in the air. The men fled back to the fortress above, and the haunted sentry box was never used again. I see them swaying to and fro Two little zombies watch them go Could this be madness here inside When I see zombies dance in the night Whirling and weaving to a tune That seems to fade out with the moon All is forgotten
Yes, sir. Glasses. Yeah, uh, who does the artwork for the night gallery show? The name suddenly incredibly eludes me, though I know it as well as my own. <laughs> yeah. And I'll get to that shortly. Uh, brilliant, young, versatile artist who sculpts and paints, and paints in water and paints in, in oils and does beautifully. He li no, they never do. They don't accept outside material, literary, literary material. They don't accept outside painting. And my contract calls for uh, maybe one out of six scripts and the sweeping of the studio on Friday evening. <laughs> you. Uh, you, you're suggesting there's a propensity of the occult and witchcraft, not only on my show, but new movies that are coming on. ABC has a new show called, is it The Sixth Dimension or something like that? I, I think uh, uh, that's a sincere form of flattery. And it simply reinforces something that I've always felt, was that one of the major universal storytelling themes is ghost, is the occult, is science fiction, is man stretching out imaginatively. I remember the first Twilight Zone we ever wrote, which, oddly enough, was written in 1952, though it wasn't filmed until 1959. And it had to do with a young guy who woke up in a strange town and didn't find anyone. And you discover that he's an astronaut training to go to the moon, in which you have to live in protracted loneliness. And when I see that film nowadays, and you see this guy being carted out of this huge hangar, and he looks up at the moon, Earl Holloman, and he says, don't go way up there, we're going to be there. And I think, by God, that was fantasy in 1951. You know, that was uh, a part of my whiskey coma that week. And then suddenly, by God, they're walking on the moon. Well, there's no end to it. There's no horizon, man. We have not yet even reached out and touched or tickled the incredible, wondrous things that are going to come to us eventually. One of the wondrous things is that I'm going to leave you at 11 o'clock, and I'm sure you're going to appreciate that. <laughs> Who's the neighborhood? They're not pretty. 
They're not neighborly. You'll come back now, you hear? They're not even human. But this time, they're the good guys. From the imagination of Clive Barker comes Nightbreed. You can't go down there! They have only one enemy. A beast called Man, sworn to destroy the Nightbreed. Sounds like we're going head-to-head -head with the devil himself. And only one chance. A man <gasps> called Boone. It's time to fight! fantasies, Clive Barker brings you a startling new breed of adventure. I won't let you down. Nightbreed. At last, the night has a hero. Outstanding. of your own, but as the rain enters the soil, the river enters the sea, so tears run to a predestined end. Find peace for a moment, my son. Master, we are here. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Why, he's mad. Look at his eyes. Why, the man's gone crazy. <laughs>
Tramps all stand around and stare And if you ever want to take a look You'll find an old caretaker there When you step inside He tells a tale of ghosts that whine and wail Around and round about the place at night And this is how he tells his tale Or hear that bogey wail Up and down the scale Creeping in and out of every room Bogey wail What an awful wail Guaranteed to fill your soul with gloom Kind of freezes you, then it kind of teases you That mysterious road Makes you panicky when you hear that minor moan Bogey fears make you strain your ears When you're on your own alone at night Here it comes, nearer yet it comes Filling every marabone with fright A sort of sneaking round, a freaking round Long to see the moonlight pale Every night when you dim the light You can hear the bogey wail Well, fall's finally here. We had a kind of summery September, and the first two weeks of October, I think you'll agree, James, they were pretty much like summer. Oh, yeah. It was. But out of the blue yesterday, bam, it's fall. Cold weather, the east winds, and the smell of neighborhood fireplaces going on. And this is the time we pick to go out in our backyard and tell ghost stories, but that's what we're doing. Sitting in the cold right now in front of a fire and about to tell true ghost stories. And hearing some celebrity ghost stories, too. It's kind of a ghost story fest, I think. But I'm in the mood right now. I mean, I can see Halloween everywhere. I, even at work, they brought out big buckets of candy. <laughs> and uh, nice. somebody, put, my work. somebody put a paper skeleton up. I, we just went to a Not Scary Farm that had some very cool stuff this year. Especially a giant pumpkin. Pumpkin seeds that hit you in the head. Oh, nice. So, anyway. And so we're going to begin. James... I think you have the first one. So I'm going to go, and I didn't even know this existed, but it does. This is a local haunt, and uh, or, uh, it, it, uh, I'm going to refer to it as you mean the... haunting? No, a local... Uh, uh, like Spectre. Okay. Sorry. And I'm going to call it the Whiny Me Pier Spectre. <laughs> nice. So as the story goes, according to one of my, uh, <laughs> my uh, fellow employees... Uh, he said that not only did he see it, but another friend another time saw it where 
a ghostly visit visage. He saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his friend is the one that told him about it, okay. and then they kind of investigated together when they were young. And uh, Winingy is a beach by our house, and there's a pier that looks like a normal pier, just goes out into the water, and uh, it doesn't. This they what they see is they said it was like a uh, like a spectral uh, kind of translucent uh, head with not a gown but just like a ghostly figure and he saw this. he saw this he said and he said that it didn't walk along the pier but it went from the pier all along the water like he was like he oh. or she was traveling across the water and when it got to a certain point there's at the end of the beach is a uh, is a old um, uh, Edison plant and uh, and uh, you know they could get they could see it off far in the distance and, and it would it would vanish they they, they they tried to chase it kind of but they were scared too because they were young and so they walked quietly down and then it just disappeared that is the craziest thing ever yeah. <laughs> I mean that's one of the best I've ever heard I mean of, of seeing something so clear not out of the corner of your eye or something you heard or yeah, they, they definitely saw, you know, and they tried to, you know, yeah, they saw it. That's what they said. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you, James. Well, my first ghost story comes from my grandfather, and I didn't hear this directly from him, but he told it to my mom. And uh, my mom said his whole life until his dying day, he uh, always said that this was true. And he was kind of a sober guy. He, yeah. He, uh, I mean, he had a good sense of humor, but he didn't make things up or see things or have believe in things like UFOs or anything. So he was a teenager at the time and he was at home one night and this was a little house out um, where Thousand Oaks is now but about then it was amounted to about a rolling prairie really. There was not too many people out there. There was nobody for miles except the Petersons who was the next farm over. And the house he was in was the first house they built after the little shack that he was born in. And it was still a small house, but he had a room. I don't know if he shared it with other people, but at the time of this story, he was alone. And um, he was playing his flute, which he practiced and, and liked. And suddenly while he was playing the flute, over his playing, he heard the sound. He couldn't make it out, so he stopped playing. And it sort of sounded like the rustling of papers and he couldn't quite make it out and was wondering what was going on then he looked up towards the door which was partly open and he saw this person looking in from the partially open door and this was none of his relatives and nobody he'd ever seen before and there's nobody around there's no, like it's well, in mean, the middle of nothing the people he knows yeah and then the figure was just gone and so I don't know for my mom, she didn't get the story of whether he, he just stayed there scared and didn't move until someone came in or ran out and asked questions. I don't know. But he swore up and down um, that that's what happened. So it must have scared the heck. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's my grandfather's hideous story. It was probably like 1915 or 19. Yeah, that was about right. Yeah. So uh, we right. have old, older grandparents, so. James, so what is our next tale? The tale? next one is actually kind of a a, a a funny one, I think. But it's a it was it funny to them at kinda, the time? Kind of. Well, it, it was, but 
So in Camarillo, uh, if you live in California, you know of a place called the Camarillo State Hospital. Oh, yeah. And it the was a mental uh, hospital. Yeah, it was now a, a college. And it, basically, it was the mental hospital for not, if, if not half the state, the whole state. And there was real, real, like, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, people there. And then other people, too. There's a lot of books on it and whatnot. Uh, there were people that got in, put in there accidentally, and it was crazy horror, and, you know, because of this. And they did the shock treatments, everything. So they had people that definitely wandered aimlessly or played, you know, games or talked to themselves, that kind of deal. And that was kind of famous for it. Well, it bordered a windy road that used to get up to Thousand Oaks, speaking of Thousand Oaks, called Potrero Road. And Potrero Road is this windy, especially then, because now there's a college there, but it was a windy, dark road. And uh, the hospital itself closed down before the college came, obviously. So there was some yeah, years. Many years. There was years where 30. it was just uh, nothing. So it was after the place had shut down, and uh, a buddy of mine drove past, and he could see in the pitch dark kind of just a little light from somewhere and he couldn't tell where the light was coming from but he saw a circle of what looked like in not inmates but you know <laughs> the patients playing what he thought to be hot potato in a circle and he drove past and looked back and it kind of was gone <laughs> oh that's crazy so especially at then that was in the middle of nowhere uh, that would have given you the creeps yeah, and it was kind of just absurd as well. <laughs> like they're playing this goofy game of hot potato or, or duck, duck, whatever, goose. But uh, yeah, he swears it happened. So, what what time period was this? It well, I guess in just the in the nineties, because okay. that's yeah, that's when he would be a teenager driving up there. So wow, yeah. Well, I'm gonna tell a few stories now, that kind of uh, interlock together with their theme. And one is from my friend Gil and his house, and one is from my cousins Norman, Julie, and their house in Oregon. And then one is by the mother of, of one of my dear friends, Edward Hudson, Mrs. Hudson. And this was back in Mexico when she was a child. The first one is my friend Gilberto. He's worked for me for many years over at Rick Baker's, and it, his house where he grew up in, throughout his whole life, they always just accepted that there were uh, ghosts going on or something. There would be things moved that there was no explanation for, like you set a pencil there and suddenly it's in the next room and all sorts of interesting things. And um, then one day a friend of theirs came over, a kid, and um, was sitting down and looking into the kitchen and said, Who's the lady in there? Is that is that your aunt or somebody visiting? And they go, what are you talking about? There's nobody here. No, there's a lady just passed by. And they got up to see if did someone just walk in here. And there was nobody there. And there was nobody in the house. Everyone was gone but them. And he just assumed that that was the ghost of the house, that they had been playing tricks on him all this time. So it was a mischievous, you know, kind of I guess, or, or somebody just like to mess with your things. Not so much was it like, you know, because you, you hear about them, like the mischievous you know, one or whatever. Yeah, or, but so they're not as scary as. Yeah, <laughs> that, I wanted to attack you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and Norman and Julie, which are cousins that live up in Oregon, 
And their house is a rambling house up there. And it's kind of in the woods on the outside of St. Helens. Yeah. And they always claim, too, that they had a ghost in their house. And what it would be for them is they would hear sounds. They would hear rappings or walking footsteps. And sometimes out of the corner of their eye, they thought they saw somebody and turned around and there was nobody. And they would always get this weird feeling. Um, something like somebody looking at me or... And they just eventually accepted it. I forget they gave a name for the ghost. <laughs> and they just... They didn't bother him. And the Gilberto was the same way. But Mrs. Hudson, uh, she wasn't as open-minded as that. And um, they had an... She and her sisters, they had this uncle. And... Um, they one time stayed, they went and visited him, and then they stayed the night, and they were downstairs. He was upstairs, and they were a room that was, he took one flight of stairs, and there was rooms, and they were there, and another flight that went from that, and that's where their uncle was. So during the night, they woke up, one of her sisters, and shook her and said, somebody's in the house. And they could hear somebody walking up the stairs, and... They were like too scared. They thought they could rationalize it. Well, it's just our uncle, but they really didn't think so. But they weren't going to go out there. Like, oh, my poor uncle, he might get murdered, but we're not going out there. So the next day, they told their uncle. And he just matter of fact, said, oh, yeah, that's the ghost. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah every, night, every night or so, I can hear steps coming up the stairway. And then somebody sits on the foot of my bed. <laughs> like, what? Did you still live here? They're like, oh, it doesn't bother me. So that was it. They never would stay the night ever. They didn't even like to visit. Well, when the man died and they sold the house and the new owners, they ripped up the stairs that kept walking up and down. And there was some uh, money and stuff shoved in there that somebody had put there in a false uh, hatch. Wow. And so they wondered, oh, was the ghost trying to tell him or what? Trying to keep his money from everybody. <laughs> trying to get his money back. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's those stories, though. Now I think it's time we should have some celebrity ghost stories. Okay. So, here we go. Take a listen. I was 13 at the time. It was 1984. And I was doing a film um, outside of Toronto called Martin's Day. I play a, a young boy who gets taken hostage by an escaped convict played by Richard Harris. And the producers had chosen to do it at, at to this facility called the Lakeshore Psychiatric Hospital. And I get there and I see this sprawling, decrepit, fantastic old asylum that we're using as the set. It was abandoned and it was huge. You know, it's, it's hundreds of acres and multiple buildings. There are chains and bars. There are broken windows. There's doors that were covered up with shrubs that had overgrown. To a 13-year-old, it's just absolutely fascinating. You know, when you're making movies, there's a lot of downtime. And I could never sit still for long periods of time at all. And so I would sort of take myself on little adventures. Just walk around. You know, all around the place it says, you know, do not enter, do not come in. And that to me was just an invitation to go and see what I could find. The buildings had a, a life of their own in my eyes.
there was one building that I was sort of apprehensive about going in. And I don't really know why, but there was something about this particular building that was different than the rest. It was called Building K. As I get closer, I began to hear children's voices sort of light and faint. I could feel that there's a reason that I need to go into this building. And it was something I had to explore. And I can tell that the door is a little bit open. It's a little broken and it's a little bit stopped. So sort of wedged my way through the door and I got inside. So I started walking around, you know, just sort of checking it out. The building had tremendous amount of doors and rooms and hallways. to hear screams of a girl this laughter and voices I'm sort of being pulled along by the voices I didn't really know where I was and I walked down this one hall and turned the corner shadows the children's voices sounded like they were originating from this particular room and I kind of thought about what I was doing and I was like alright I gotta sort of see it through it scared me to death to go in there but I just knew that I had to keep going on and I went into the room. And as soon as I walked into the room, I definitely felt like I wasn't alone. I could feel and hear and sense that there were these children around. I was scared. I felt like this is not where I'm supposed to be. I could feel them coming closer. I could feel them right next to me. That they sort of were gathering around. And they were sort of calling to me to come and join them. And that was just chilling. And all of a sudden... I could hear the voice of an adult. And there begins to feel like a presence of heaviness in the room. I felt threatened. I felt like I had disturbed something that I should not have disturbed. And so I had to get out of it. So very quietly, I backed out. And I went back the way that I came.
purpose to get out of that building. I feel like something's following me. Very afraid. And so I just started running faster. And I can hear sounds are, are echoing all around. think there's anything following me but still didn't feel like I was a hundred percent sure that there wasn't going to be something that was going to happen Justin! Just, oh. crew member comes and basically scared the you know what out of me Are you okay? What's going on? and he's like you okay what's going on and I said no I'm fine I took one last look at the building and I was like I'm not ever going back in there number of years later, I was watching the movie on TV, and it got me thinking about the experience. And it sort of started to, to flood back to me. And so I, I did some research on the internet, and I found out that the place was indeed an asylum for the mentally and criminally insane. And Building K was the children's ward. And they apparently did experiments on children. Time for more treatment. Who wants to go first? You. You're going first. <laughs> you never did. And that just just blew me away. That was kind of hideous. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good one. All right, that's kind of blowing my mind right now. James, can you top that one? So I was talking to a gal at work, and she told me a story about her aunt and uncle. And her aunt, had they were in their 80s. Their aunt had, her husband had died. And then her brother, her uncle, his family had died, and they, they lived in the family house. Okay. And the family house was cut into a hill. So it was kind of a weird, weird, interesting layout so that you'd actually walk upstairs to get into the backyard. And he loved to go in that backyard, the uncle, Uncle Chuck, because he was a great gardener and he made his garden super great. She said it was awesome. They had like all kinds of perennials and fruit trees. And, you know, he just was, that was his thing. That was his hobby to, to you know, to finish out his life. And he ended up dying and the aunt she was elderly and she really couldn't keep the garden up and one day she you know she she had been particularly uh you know neglectful neglectful, yeah exactly and uh she went to bed and she was woken up by somebody walking up those steps to the backyard and this is on the outside you could do it. 
And no, it's oh, in, in, in the house. house. In the house. Oh, yeah. So in the house, somebody was stepping up, and you kind of know. She said that she, you know, I know my brother's walk. I know it. And whatever it was was wheezing, and and he had been a smoker, so he he he. No, her husband he, had died. No, her. The, it was the brother, right? So because they weren't married, they were brother and sister. Oh. And so he was a smoker, and he had this wheeze to her, to him too. And so, if she didn't think about it for too long, she could have swore that it was her brother. But of course, he was dead, so she didn't think anything of it. Was there anyone in the house living with Nobody. her? Nobody. It's well, just no her by herself. What? There's yeah. somebody in my house. Right. So it scared her, and she couldn't put it quite together. But what ended up, she, her discovering, just because she would have her grandson come over and help her with that garden, because she felt, ah, this is my brother's thing. I really want to try to keep it up. So. Whenever she did work on it, there was no sound. No footsteps. No footsteps, no wheezing, no anything. And when she became neg- neglectful again, she would hear those those footsteps. And she finally just thought, well, I, maybe it's my brother and he wants me to keep this garden going. But she was so sickly and, and it, it, you know, it got bad. And so she ended up having to take some of the plants out and get rid of them because they were all dead. And she's like, I don't want it to be a fire hazard or whatever. So they took out one of the trees. And and that war- that day she hired somebody and got, you know, ripped a, a large portion out. Uh, that night, the, stamper, the stamping up the stairs was even louder. And there was a big rattling of the window on the outside and she had shelves and things knocked down off her shelves and, oh. and it scared her. And so what happened was she ended up again paying somebody to put a bunch of stuff back and it went away for a little while but of course she 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 couldn't keep it up and you know she you know she was a little mean so she couldn't pay somebody to do it so it would go back and forth like this seesaw thing he would show up he wouldn't show up and the only thing that finally helped was the man's daughter her brother's daughter her niece actually was able to make it there finally from back east from Florida and the aunt had the ashes and and the daughter came finally from Florida to pick them up uh, took them home and it. took them home because they didn't want to mail, mail them <laughs> they just yeah. wanted to do the thing and so what happened was once those ashes were gone it never happened again wow so for what it's worth that man loved his garden. <laughs> he was a workaholic even after he was dead. I I didn't hear the story. I didn't think to ask if she uh, if, if she was that hard on her daughter. <laughs> hey, you got better put a garden in the backyard or something. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, that, oh, that's, that's cool. the story. Well, let's go for another celebrity uh, ghost story. This one's from Farusa Balk. So let's hear it now. This is literally one of the most frightening times I can remember in my life. I was so, so terrified. The worst part of it was, it wasn't like it was a shadow of a person or um, an orb or these other things that people talk about. I don't know what it was. I started acting when I was 
six. I'd always traveled with my mother. And when we would come to Los Angeles for meetings or for auditions, we were always together. And we always stayed at this one particular hotel. It's a beautiful, famous, old Hollywood hotel. It looks as though it stopped in time. Everybody there knew me. They were like family. And when I was about 15 or 16, it was my first trip to Los Angeles alone. So I came to the hotel, said hi to everybody, and they brought me to my room, which was on a different floor than I'd ever stayed. And I asked them why, and they said, oh, unfortunately, your room was booked, so we're putting you in here. They put me on the, the very first floor, which is closest to the lobby. I ordered my dinner and got ready for bed, and I was really, really cold. I went over and looked at the meter, and it shouldn't have been that cold at all. I looked at the clock and saw how late it was, and I knew I had to get up really early the next day because I had this huge audition that I was very excited and very nervous about. So I went and got an extra blanket out of the closet and um, turned all the lights off. Went and got into bed and bundled up, went to lay down to go to sleep. Tried to just relax and think good thoughts. Okay, I'm gonna do a good job tomorrow and I'm gonna get this job. Then the light turns back on. So I turned it back off, rolled back over. Relaxing, trying to go to sleep. Click, light comes back on. Okay, turn it back off. Light comes back on. I started to get the creeps. The room got much colder. It got so cold that I was actually starting to shiver, even though I was underneath the covers. I'm sitting up in bed and I've got the covers up around my neck. And it's just getting colder and colder and colder. And I'm getting more and more frightened. I could see my breath in the room. And all the hair was standing up on my arms and the back of my neck. The air itself somehow became thicker. It was tangible, like you could reach out and grab it if you wanted to. It looked sparkly. And then the chair in front of the desk crashes to the floor. And I jump. I held my finger up because if the finger was moving with the chair, then I knew it was my imagination. But the chair moved past my hand. I knew that it was definitely moving. And I knew something was in here. The curtains started to billow, even though the French doors closed. All of a sudden, everything in the room went berserk. The light on the ceiling was turning on and off. The desk started to move. The curtains were 
literally flying all over the place. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse. At this point, I'm just... I'm just freaking out. I can't move. I can't scream. No sound will come out of my throat. With every passing second, it was getting more and more intense as though it was feeding off my fear, like the room itself was possessed. I'm trying to figure out how to get to the door, how to get out of this room, and how to get away from whatever it is that's in there. I pull the covers up over my eyes. I take a deep breath. I tell myself I'm a big girl. I tell myself I'm strong enough to handle this. I tell myself not to be afraid. That whatever it is that's in there, it can't hurt me. It's not alive. And I'm sucking up my courage. And as I take the deep breath to get up, the bed underneath me goes, Kukum. the bed lifts up, probably about a foot off of the floor, to the point where it throws me up. I land. And I open. I grab the door, I turn around, and the air was thick like fog, and it came at me. I ran in my bare feet and my 90 towards the lock. I looked over my shoulder, and you could see it in the doorway. You could see it coming like it was coming out of the door. I could feel it rushing behind me. It was coming after me. I balled up my fists and I flew. There were gusts of wind going past me. My hair was whipping around. I wasn't even sure I was going to get to the lobby. I just had to run as fast as I could and pray that I'd make it. I got to the lobby and I opened my mouth to tell them what had happened and no, no sound came out. It was as though someone had put a vice around my throat and around my stomach. So the only sound that would come out of my mouth was there's something in my room, there's something in my room, there's something in my room. Panicking, panicking, they're calm down, calm down, calm down. They take me behind the desk, they wrap a little blanket around me. Calm down, sweetie, tell us what happens, what's going on. Within about an hour, I could finally talk about what had happened. And I told them I didn't want to go back to the room. I didn't want to even go near the room. There was something in there. No one can tell me that it wasn't. I knew it. Trying to convince them, saying, I swear, I swear this happened. We will get you another room, right? And they said, you don't have to convince us. It's okay. We know. I said, this is something you know about? You, this has happened here? before in there and I said well yeah the first floor we've had a few a few incidents there was a woman who worked as a maid she did say under her breath 
She should never have been put in that room. She's too young. And I was just like, what? I was on a flight home the next day. I just wanted to go home. Whatever it was, it was really angry. And it felt more than anything like it needed to be noticed. And it was angry that it wasn't. I still visit the hotel. I don't stay in the hotel, but I go. I have lunch. The interesting thing is that room that I stayed in actually got sealed shut. So no one can stay in there anymore. And it wasn't just because of me. They'd had other incidences there to the point where they felt that it was unsafe. So at least that way I knew that I wasn't the only one that had experienced that and that it was real. Wow, that one was crazy. <laughs> I think the hotel she's talking about is the Roosevelt Hotel right there on Hollywood Boulevard. It fits the bill. Yeah. I'm going to have to check and see about that room. See if anybody knows. Of course, they're not going to... Ah, there's all new people there probably now. Anyway, well, I'm going to tell my next ghost story. And this is actually from my own life. And these are not visuals, but this is more like uh, your friend's aunt. And that's audio type. Things I heard. So the first one is years ago, I was house-sitting for uh, my friend... And that was Suzanne Dominey. And they lived in a house that used to be my grandmother's house when I was growing up. Uh, my dad's mother. And she had passed away. And, and we rented it out over the years to different people. And at this point, it was the family friends. So I was there and I was watching television in the living room. And uh, it led to the front door. And I had the front door open and just the screen door locked there. And as I was sitting watching TV, I could hear some kind of sound coming from somewhere. And I got up, because there's no remotes back then, and I turned down the television. And then I could hear it seemed to be coming from the screen door. And then it got louder, and I noticed that's, that's somebody saying something. And then I realized it was my name. And it kept going over and over, and it was just like, Frank, Frank. Frank and I, I started. I got happy, sort of, and and uh, because I thought someone was screwing with Jack me. or somebody. And I thought it was cool, so I ran really quick to the door and threw it open. There was nobody there, and it just it flabbergasted me. And then I ran really quick to the left and to the right and ran around the house, and there was nobody anywhere. So I don't know what that is. Uh, it was too loud and distinct. To be me just hearing a car sound and interpreting it yeah, wrong. Yeah, thinking it was something. That was weird. That kind of shook me up. I was alone there. <laughs> House sitting. So then the next one, it actually was just a little while ago. And um, when I was a kid, I went to camp, the Salvation Army Day Camp. And on the, they would, we'd go all day to the beach every day just for the day and go home, bring our own lunch. And at the end of the week, you would go camping on a Saturday night. You go there, um, well, actually, be Friday night. You go there Friday night, stay the night, Saturday, do some stuff, and then you come home. So when we were there, they told me the story of the Char Man. And that was a local legend in Ojai. That's the first time I'd heard about it. 
And it was the tale of some uh, man or his son that got burned in a fire in 48. And then he was, he kind of went crazy or at least, you know, became a hermit. And he would attack people sometimes or scare them off from areas that he stayed in. And seemed to be like a homeless guy or a spirit. You never could quite tell from this. And it, it had us mesmerized and kind of scared. And the next morning, um, a lot of us were just having breakfast and then messing around playing. And some people had gone out already hiking and things. I, obviously, they weren't keeping good track of us. Yeah. But, but anyway. It was a 70s. <laughs> and suddenly this kid come running back. And he was terrified. And he was... And at first we're, we're you know, he was really scared. But we were just... You know, we weren't taking him seriously. We were kind of laughing at him. And he kept saying he saw the Charmin. And we're like, what? And so the counselors were kind of mad at him at first. And then they they, um, they kind of took him to the side. And while they were doing that, all of us ran <laughs> every direction looking for the Charmin. And I went up uh, on this little trail up to where it led to the Foster Bowl, which the night before, there's an old bowl that used to be a concert hall way back in the 20s and that and, and 30s I think too and then anyway it became abandoned and we had our you know our little skits and stuff the night before well I went down there and I couldn't find anything couldn't find him anyway that boy was sent home he didn't want to be there anymore and I we never saw him again I mean we were only there for the week so flash forward to just a little while ago my friends had the show and it's called uh, par Hollywood Paranormal Detectives and they just go to the different areas and they have all these little devices and I thought, oh, why don't we come to the Charman story? So we're, we're going to the um, different places to this bridge that was known at night and they have these devices. Some are just for temperature, some are for um, I don't know just different kind of waves and energy. I have this one device, I don't know what it's called but it what it, do is it does is it flashes through the radio stations, very fast, very fast, where the most you get is half a word or maybe one word. And the thing of it is, the theory is, that if you get a sentence out of it, that, that that's something that shouldn't happen, so oh, maybe it's a spirit trying to talk to us. So then we decide after the bridge where you, the Charman is seen, because by now he's supposed to be a dead man, you know, like oh, the yeah. same guy, and now, now his yeah. ghost is coming around. Yeah. So we go up to the Foster Bowl, but this is the middle of the night. And me and the lead guide, Steve Atkins, we're going up, and it is pitch dark. <laughs> it is pretty scary up there. So we go up, there's all these bars and little places where we can go under, and it just looks at the dark areas. And he's going up, and he's, he's going, Charman, you know, uh, do you... Do you uh, you see anybody familiar? It's just different stuff. And suddenly over the thing, it says Frank. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. What are you guys screwing with me? And oh, the guy was like, wow, you know, it's kind of amazed. And then we're walking around and I started getting kind of cocky. And I go, I'd say, well, I'm going to scare this guy. And I go, Charman, are you watching us right now? And out of that little device, it goes, you got it. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> I took off from there. It was the weirdest thing. So I don't know how those devices work or what. But supposedly you can't get that from it. You can't get like a sentence. 
Anyway, that was very creepy. <laughs> and so those are my only brushes with the supernatural. And who knows if they were or not. But anyway, I put them out there. Now, James, what's your next one? My next one is uh, a guy I work, Charlie, told me this. He had already, he said, I don't have anything. And then he came back to me at the end of the day and he goes, I got something that scared me. Everybody says that. I got nothing. And then, well, well, but wait a minute. I got something that scared me when I was a kid. And he goes, it was more of a, you know, crazy, like it's from like a 70s movie or something, like The Exorcist or something, where he was seven years old and he was really good friends with like a neighbor. And, you know, that was his buddy. And he would go over to his mom's house or I mean to his, his friend's, his friend's house all the time and his mom would be there obviously and his mom he said was a very religious person and had like religious things all over the house and that kind of thing and, and um, he didn't even say that he would they were doing anything like a cult or there was like seven years old so there's no reason oh, <laughs> for yeah. there's no reason for the the lady to 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 do what what happened but what ha- what he he said happened was she like stopped him one day and just told him you know the devil is real the devil is real and you know he could in his brain like his parents were kind of like not that religious he's like ah what yeah whatever but she said i was praying the other night and i felt the icy cold hand of a demon on my back and I just looked forward and I prayed harder and it left but I've never felt that cold in my whole life (laughs) and that was it she left the room (laughs) and it wasn't seven year old kids like (laughs) it wasn't really like a thing where you could you know, like she wasn't somebody that was like me who would do that to a seven-year-old and screw with them for a second and go, ah, I'm just joking. I don't even think I would do that. But maybe a 14-year-old, you know, somebody, you know, a teenager, you know. To, but he just said, oh, man, it freaked me out for years, man. <laughs> so, anyways, that was his story That's at the end good, of the no day. Matter he, what. he came back and said, and he's kind of a, he's funny. And so, you know, he, he just he just out of the blue told me that. I was not expecting that that would be the story, but that was the story. That's a cool story. That's awesome. Well, I guess that ends our little circle of ghost stories around the fire here because I am freezing my took us off. Yeah. And it's time it's to go fine. in. At least the wind is down now. But anyway, um, we're going to go out with one more celebrity ghost story. Let's see if this one can top us. I was born into a very happy Protestant congregational Connecticut family. My parents were the best parents you could ever imagine. The only thing about our happy family was that we didn't hug and kiss. It was 
all the love and safety and comfort and happiness that you could ever feel within a family, but it lacked the the holding, the touchy feeling. You never said, I love you, mommy, I love you, dad. I got any of my energy or anything, I got it from my mom. She was always on the go. Always washing or cooking or da 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 da. I had a dancing class every day. She made all my costumes and she hated to sew. I mean, she did everything. And I think she saw right off that I was just going to be me. I wanted to be a dancer and I wanted to be an artist and I wanted to be a cake decorator and I wanted to be a florist. And she supported anything and everything I wanted to do. The worst thing about my mom is that she died unexpectedly. She was going in to have an operation and it was supposed to be a piece of cake operation. But she had an aneurysm and my dad was there. But I didn't get to see her. being gone. My biggest regret was that we didn't talk. We didn't hang out. I didn't crash away the mother-daughter barrier. I don't have that barrier with my daughter. Years later, in the mid-80s, things really started kicking for my business. I was just working, working, working so hard. And I wanted to get a house out of the city because I needed my own peaceful, quiet, private place. So I got a real estate agent. She took me to this town east to Connick. No traffic, no nothing. And there's this little magical house. I go in the house and I loved it. There was the little tiny kitchen and there was a potbelly stove. The house was perfect, so I bought the house. My daughter, Lulu, was a teenager. She was maybe 14, 15. Not a country girl. I mean, she would hate to go up to the house with me. Lulu thought it was really nuts getting that house. So I was usually alone. One day, I got up very, very early and I came down to the bottom of the stairs, very groggy, not awake, have to make the coffee. sudden I saw this person walk out of the kitchen 
She was like a like a mirage. And it was my mom. And she looked at me and I looked at her. She was very calm, which is funny because I don't ever really remember my mother calm. And I was very happy. When we connected, when we looked at each other, I felt a sense that she was with me again. And then she was gone. That was it. I think mom came back to me in that house because it was quiet and it was calm and that's what we never had together and i think i needed that sense of closure i needed to say goodbye i never saw my mom again i didn't need to see her again once was wonderful and as i get older i realize how important it is to let people know how much you love them because when they're gone they're gone
thought he'd like to do that all over my body. You're going to do a scene with Boris Karloff. Your lines will appear right here. Read them loud and clear. Come in. You know why I've asked you here. You must convince the villagers that I'm harmless. You're trembling. Are you afraid? Have some nice hot coffee. It's butternut. Like it? Butternut has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. Butternut has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. Take this. Oh, don't worry. I've lots more. Butternut coffee. Regular and instant. Rich but never bitter. Here in the more sophisticated part of London's money belt lives a Verdelac. It's taken me quite some time to track him down, but finally I've cornered him in a very splendid flat at the top of this house behind me. What is a Verdelac? Didn't I tell you? Well, come with me now and we'll find out from the Verdelac himself. Mr. Karloff, what exactly is a Verdelac? The Verdelac, I think, is the Russian word for vampire. And that's what it is. Is it based in legend, or is it something created just for the film Black Sabbath? No, I think it's, I think it's actually the legend. I think it's the real word for it that they use for vampire. And, of course, it is about a vampire, at least the, the third story of the series. Mr. Karloff, you've played many monsters and frightening and terrifying creatures. Do you ever regret having been typecast in this way? Good heavens, no. I think any actor who gets typed is very lucky. We're all typed. If you're a juvenile, you play juveniles, so you're typed as a juvenile. And if you get typed in a line of country that's... Or if you get known for a certain kind of part that is not too restricted, uh, I think you're very lucky. It becomes a trademark. And if you achieve a trademark, I think you're a very fortunate actor. Mr. Garland, how did you start off in the business? Oh, a pack of lies, of course. I went to Canada and I was a young man. I went down to Seattle. I was in Vancouver. I told a pack of lies to an agent, said I'd had a great deal of experience, and I told him all the parts that I played in London, all the things that I could remember having seen. I said I'd been in them. And I had been ill and come to Canada for my health and was now prepared to re-enter the ranks of my profession. And uh, he kept a straight face, and a year later he was stuck for somebody to send to a company, and he sent for me, and I went. And that was it. And that was your start in the that, that was my start, yes. What about films? How did all that start? Well, I had about ten years of small stock and rep sort of wandering around, and then I wound up in a show of the Virginian in the Middle West somewhere. And we toured out to California, and the thing closed. Then I played in stock out there and then found myself out of work in Los Angeles. And a friend of mine knew the casting director for Douglas Fairbanks. This is the older. And uh, I made my debut in films as an extra in a, in, a, in a film that he was doing, a thing called His Majesty the American, I think. I was a Mexican soldier. But Frankenstein's monster really made you a star. 
changed the whole course of my life and is the best friend any actor ever had, I can assure you. Now, a lot of authoritative people say that horror films have a bad effect on people, and some say they have a beneficial effect on people. Which do you agree with? Well, I don't like the word horror to start with. The word horror really implies revulsion, which isn't the idea of the exercise at all. It's entertainment, it's excitement, it's thrill, it's suspense. If you like, it's terror, but certainly not horror. I don't know if they're beneficial. I don't think they do any harm. Uh, I can only speak of my own experience when I played the monster, and I only played him three times in the first three films. Any letters that I got from youngsters, beyond just asking for a photograph, all express great compassion for the monster, so I don't think it would be very harmful. Do you yourself believe in the supernatural, in ghosts and things like this? Well, I would hate to say I didn't, because they've been very good to me in, in my professional career. I, I don't know whether I am really superstitious or not. I'm, I'm careful, put it that way. When you're preparing for a role, do you do much study, as, say, the method actors do? Well, I have my own opinion about the method actors. I don't think a great deal of it. And perhaps I can put it in, in a nutshell. I believe Alfred Lunt was asked that question, how he prepared before he went on the stage, this is. And he thought for a moment, and he said, well, I stand in the wings, I listen for my cue, I check my fly, go on and try not to bump into people. <laughs> and that was his method, and I think it's about mine. <laughs> Black Sabbath is about to be released, and I'm sure it'll be an enormous success. Well, I hope so. And I believe you have three more films lined up. Yes. It's for American international films, and the next one goes, I think, in January. Do you ever think about retiring? Good Lord, no. What for? Just so long as anybody is foolish enough to employ me, I'm delighted to do it. <laughs> it's extraordinary to meet a star who's been a star for so long who really seems to have no regrets. Have you any regrets at all about your career? No regrets at all, except that inevitably, Anno Domini, it must be drawn to a close. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I enjoy working. And I think I'm a very fortunate man. Any ambitions left to achieve? Yes. One that won't be achieved. I would love to be in a play in London. I've been in New York. I've had ten years in small stock and rep in the States. I haven't appeared on the stage in London. And I don't think that can happen now because I've got a bad knee, which will make it rather difficult. But I would love to have done that sometime. However, you can't have everything. Well, Mr. Karloff, we came here today to meet Verdelac. We met a very charming gentleman. Thank you so much for talking to us. Very kind of you. Thank you.
Now a little H.P. Joelcraft. or name I had drifted our seas without ending under sinister grey clouded skies that the many forked lightning is rending that resounds with hysterical cries with the moans of invisible demons that out of the green That rise barren and bleak from the plain I have drunk from the fog-fetid fountains That ooze down to the marsh and the main And in hot, cursed tarns I have seen Things I care not to gaze on again I have scanned the vast ivy-clad palace I have trod its untenanted hall Where the moon writhing up from the valleys Shoes the tapestry things on the wall Strange figures discordantly woven Which I cannot endure to recall I have peered from the casement in wonder the moldering meadows around At the many-roofed village laid under The curse of a grave-girdled ground Haunted the tombs of the ages 
I have flown on the pinions of fear Where the smoke-belching Erebus rages Where the jokuls loom snow-clad and drear And in realms where the sun of the desert Consumes what it never can cheer I was old when the first pharaohs mounted The jeweled deck thrown by the Nile I was old in those epics uncounted When I and I only was vile Oh great was the sin of my spirit And great is the reach of its doom Not the pity of heaven can cheer it nor can respite be found in the tomb Down in the infinite eons Come beating the wings of unmerciful gloom Through the goo-guarded gateways of slumber Past the wan moon abscesses of night I have lived all my lives without number I have sounded all things with my sight And I struggle and shriek ere the daybreak Being driven to madness with fright The October Game Written by Ray Bradbury Read for you by Edward E. French. He put the gun back into the drawer and shut the drawer. No, not that way. Louise wouldn't suffer. It was very important that this thing have, above all, duration. Duration through imagination. How to prolong the suffering... How, first of all, to bring it about? Well, the man standing before the bedroom mirror carefully fitted his cufflinks together. He paused long enough to hear the children run by swiftly on the street below, outside this warm two-story house, like so many gray mice, the children, like so many leaves. By the sound of the children you knew the calendar day. By their screams you knew what evening it was, you knew it was very late in the year. October. The last day of October, with white bone masks and cut pumpkins and the smell of dropped candle wax. No, things hadn't been right for some time. October didn't help any. If anything, it made things worse. He adjusted his black bow tie. If this was spring, he nodded slowly, quietly, emotionlessly, at his image in the mirror, then there might be a chance, but tonight all the world was burning down into ruin. There was no green spring, none of the freshness, none of the promise. There was a soft running in the hall. That's Marion, he told himself. My little one. All eight quiet years of her, never a word, just her luminous gray eyes and her 
wondering little mouth. His daughter had been in and out all evening, trying on various masks, asking him which was most terrifying, most horrible. They had both finally decided on the skeleton mask. It was just awful. It would scare the beans from people. Again he caught the long look of thought and deliberation he gave himself in the mirror. He had never liked October, ever since he first lay in the autumn leaves before his grandmother's house many years ago and heard the wind sway the empty trees. It has made him cry without a reason. And a little of that sadness returned each year to him. It always went away with spring, but it was different tonight. There was a feeling of autumn coming to last a million years. There would be no spring. He had been crying quietly all evening. It did not show, not a vestige of it on his face. It was all hidden somewhere, and it wouldn't stop. The rich, syrupy smell of sweets filled the bustling house. Louise had laid out apples in new skins of toffee. There were vast bowls of punch, fresh mixed. Stringed apples in each door scooped, vented pumpkins peering triangularly from each cold window. There was a water tub in the center of the living room, waiting, with a sack of apples nearby for dunking to begin. All that was needed was the catalyst, the imporing of children, to start the apples bobbing, the stringed apples to penduluming in the crowded doors, the sweets to vanish, the halls to echo with fright or delight. It was all the same. Now the house was silent with preparation. And just a little more than that. Louise had managed to be in every other room save the room he was in today. It was her very fine way of intimating, Oh, look, Mike, see how busy I am. So busy that when you walk into a room I'm in, there's always something I need to do in another room. Just see how I dash about. For a while he had played a little game with her, a nasty, childish game. When she was in the kitchen, then he came to the kitchen saying, I need a glass of water. After a moment, he standing, drinking water, she like a crystal witch over the caramel brew bubbling like a prehistoric mud pot on the stove, she said, Oh, I must light the pumpkins. And she rushed to the living room to make the pumpkins smile with light. He came after, smiling. I must get my pipe. Oh, the cider, she had cried, running to the dining room. I'll check the cider, he had said. But when he tried following, she ran to the bathroom and locked the door. He stood outside the bathroom door, laughing strangely and senselessly, his pipe gone cold in his mouth, and then, tired of the game, but stubborn, he waited another five minutes. There was not a sound from the bath, and lest she enjoy in any way knowing that he waited outside, irritated, he suddenly jerked about and walked upstairs, whistling merrily. At the top of the stairs he had waited. Finally he had heard the bathroom door unlatch, and she came out, and life below stairs had resumed, as life in the jungle must resume, once a terror has passed on away, and the antelope returned to their spring. Now, as he finished his bow-tie and put on his dark coat, 
there was a mouse rustle in the hall. Marion appeared in the door, all skeletons in her disguise. How do I look, Papa? Fine. From under the mask, blonde hair showed. From the skull socket, small blue eyes smiled, he sighed. Marion and Louise, the two silent denouncers of his virility, his dark power. What alchemy had there been in Louise that took the dark of a dark man and bleached the dark brown eyes and black hair and washed and bleached the ingrown baby all during the period before birth until the child was born, Marion? Blonde, blue-eyed, ruddy-cheeked, Sometimes he suspected that Louise had conceived the child as an idea, completely asexual, an immaculate conception of contemptuous mind and cell. As a firm rebuke to him, she had produced a child in her own image, and to top it, she had somehow fixed the doctor, so he shook his head and said, Sorry, Mr. Wilder, your wife will never have another child. This is the last one. And I wanted a boy, Mike had said eight years ago. He almost bent to take hold of Marion now in her skull mask. He felt an inexplicable rush of pity for her, because she had never had a father's love, only the crushing, holding love of a loveless mother. But most of all he pitied himself that somehow he had not made the most of a bad birth, enjoyed his daughter for herself, regardless of her not being dark and a son, like himself. Somewhere he had missed out. Other things being equal, he would have loved the child. But Louise hadn't wanted a child anyway in the first place. She'd been frightened of the idea of birth, he had forced the child on her, and from that night, all through the year, until the agony of the birth itself, Louise had lived in another part of the house. She had expected to die with the forced child. It had been very easy for Louise to hate this husband, who so wanted a son that he gave his only wife over to the mortuary. But Louise had lived and in triumph. Her eyes, the day he came to the hospital, were cold. I am alive, they said, and I have a blonde daughter. Just look. And when he had put out a hand to touch, the mother had turned away to conspire with her new pink daughter child away from that dark, forcing murderer. It had all been so beautifully ironic. His selfishness deserved it. But now it was October. Again. There had been other Octobers, and when he thought of the long winter, he had been filled with horror year after year to think of the endless months mortared into the house by an insane fall of snow, trapped with a woman and child, neither of whom loved him, for months on end. During the eight years there had been respites. In spring and summer you got out, walked, picnicked. 
These were desperate solutions to the desperate problem of a hated man. But in winter the hikes and picnics and escapes fell away with leaves. Life, like a tree, stood empty, the fruit picked, the sap run to earth. Yes, you invited people in, but people were hard to get in winter with blizzards and all. Once he had been clever enough to save for a Florida trip. They had gone south. He had walked in the open. But now, the eighth winter coming, he knew things were finally at an end. He simply could not wear this one through. There was an acid walled off in him that slowly had eaten through tissue and bone over the years, and now, tonight... It would reach the wild explosive in him, and all would be over. There was a mad ringing of the bell below. In the hall, Louise went to see. Marion, without a word, ran down to greet the first arrivals. There were shouts and hilarity. He walked to the top of the stairs. Louise was below, taking cloaks. She was tall and slender and blonde to the point of whiteness laughing down upon the children. He hesitated. What was all this? The years? The boredom of living? Where had it gone wrong? Certainly not with the birth of the child alone. But it had been a symbol of all their tensions, he imagined. His jealousies and his business failures and all the rotten rest of it. Why didn't he just turn, pack a suitcase, and leave? No, not without hurting Louise as much as she had hurt him. It was simple as that. Divorce wouldn't hurt her at all. It would simply be an end to numb indecision. If he thought divorce would give her any pleasure in any way, he would stay married for the rest of his life to her, for damned spite. No, he must hurt her figure some way, perhaps, to take Marion away from her, legally. Yes, that was it. That would hurt most of all, to take Marion. Hello, down there, he descended the stairs, beaming. Louise didn't look up. Hi, Mr. Wilder, the children shouted, waved as he came down. By ten o'clock the doorbell had stopped ringing. The apples were bitten from stringed doors. The pink faces were wiped dry from the apple bobbing. Napkins were smeared with toffee and punch. And he, the husband, with pleasant efficiency, had taken over. He took the party right out of Louise's hands. He ran about talking to the twenty children and the twelve parents who had come and were happy with the special spiked cider he had fixed them. He supervised pin the tail on the donkey, spin the bottle, musical chairs, and all the rest amid fits of shouting laughter. Then, in the triangular-eyed pumpkin shine, all house lights out, he cried, Hush! Follow me! Tiptoeing towards the cellar. The parents, on the outer periphery of the costumed riot, commented to each other, nodding at the clever husband, speaking to the lucky wife. How well he got on with children, they said. The children crowded after the husband, squealing. The cellar, he cried. The tomb of the witch, more squealing. 
he made a mock shiver. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. The parents chuckled. One by one the children slid down a slide which Mike had fixed up from lengths of table section into the dark cellar. He hissed and shouted ghastly utterances after them. A wonderful wailing filled the dark pumpkin-lighted house. Everybody talked at once. Everybody but Marion. She had gone through all the party with a minimum of sound or talk. It was all inside her, all the excitement and joy. What a little troll, he thought. With a shut mouth and shiny eyes she had watched her own party like so many serpentines thrown before her. Now the parents, with laughing reluctance, they slid down the short incline, uproarious, while little Marion stood by, always wanting to see it all, to be last. Louise went down without help. He moved to aid her, but she was gone even before he bent. The upper house was empty and silent in the candle shine. Marion stood by the slide. Here we go, he said, and picked her up. They sat in a vast circle in the cellar. Warmth came from the distant bulk of the furnace. The chairs stood in a long line along each wall. Twenty squealing children, twelve rustling relatives, alternatively spaced, with Louise down at the far end, Mike up at this end, near the stairs. He peered, but saw nothing. They had all grouped to their chairs, catch as you can, in the blackness. The entire program from here on was to be enacted in the dark, he as Mr. Interlocutor. There was a child scampering, smell of damp cement, and the sound of the wind out in the October stars. Now, cried the husband in the dark cellar, quiet. Everybody settled. The room was black, black, not a light, not a shine, not a glint of an eye. A scraping of crockery, a metal rattle. The witch is dead, intoned the husband. said the children, the witch is dead. She has been killed. And here is the knife she was killed with. He handed over the knife. It was passed from hand to hand, down and around the circle, with chuckles and little odd cries and comments from the adults. The witch is dead, and this is her head, whispered the husband, and handed an item to the nearest person. Oh, I know how this game is played, some child cried happily in the dark. He gets some old chicken innards from the icebox and hands them around and says, These are her innards and he makes a clay head, and passes it for her head, and passes a soup bone for her arm, and he takes a marble and says, This is her eye, and he takes some corn and says, This is her teeth, and he takes a sack of plum pudding and gives that and says, This is her stomach. I know how this is played. Hush! You'll spoil everything, some girl said. The witch came to harm, and this is her arm, said Mike. He, 
The items were passed and passed, like hot potatoes around the circle. Some children screamed, wouldn't touch them. Some ran from their chairs to stand in the center of the cellar until the grisly items had passed. Ah, oh, it's only chicken insides, scoffed a boy. Come back, Helen. Shot from hand to hand, with small scream after scream, the items went down, down, to be followed by another and another. The witch cut apart. And this is her heart, said the husband. Six or seven items moving at once through the laughing, trembling dark. Louise spoke up. Marion, don't be afraid. It's only play. Marion didn't say anything. Marion? asked Louise. Are you afraid? Marion didn't speak. She's all right, said the husband. She's not afraid. On and on, the passing, the screams, the hilarity. The autumn wind sighed about the house, and he, the husband, stood at the head of the dark cellar, intoning the words, handing out the items. Marion? asked Louise again, from far across the cellar. Everybody was talking. Marion? called Louise. Everybody quieted. Marion, answer me. Are you afraid? Marion didn't answer. The husband stood there at the bottom of the cellar steps. Louise called, Marion, are you there? No answer. The room was silent. Where's Marion? called Louise. She was here, said a boy. Maybe she's upstairs. Marion! No answer. It was quiet. Louise cried out, Marion! Marion! Turn on the lights, said one of the adults. The items stopped passing. The children and adults sat with the witch's items in their hands. No, Louise gasped. There was a scraping of her chair, wildly in the dark. No, don't turn on the lights. God, 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 don't turn them on. Please don't turn on the lights. Don't. Louise was shrieking now. The entire cellar froze with the scream. Nobody moved. Everybody sat in the dark cellar, suspended in the suddenly frozen task of this October game. The wind blew outside, banging the house. The smell of pumpkins and apples filled the room with the smell of the objects in their fingers, while one boy cried, I'll go upstairs and look. And he ran upstairs, hopefully, and out around the house, four times around the house, calling, Marion, Marion, Marion over and over and at last coming slowly down the stairs into the waiting breathing cellar and saying into the darkness i can't find her then some idiot turned on the lights when he was a teenager our brother pete used to win a lot of local radio contests the prizes were mostly 45 RPM vinyl records, hundreds of them. Out of the many he obtained, one was a particular favorite of ours. We played it over and over, but unfortunately, somewhere along the way, 
it was lost. When the internet became a thing, we searched high and low for a digital copy, but in vain. Until now. We discovered it on the Gotta Have More Tunes channel on YouTube. A great resource for the obscure. And so, we have it for you now. From Mustang Records, the Tickles performing Millie the Ghoul. Friend, this really happened to me. One night last week, at about a half past nine, I took a shortcut home by an abandoned mine. Now I'm a man with nerves of steel, but my hair stood up when I heard her squeal. Millie the ghoul coming out of the mine And she grabbed my arm like a clinging vine Just when I thought my end was near She kissed my cheek and called me dear Give me a shot of antifreeze and some Beatle records, she said Then she started doing the slossing And the stomp in the Popeye Well, I just stood there and throwed some jelly beans at her I stood like I was in a trance as Millie the Ghoul continued to dance. I tried to run, but I was froze as fire and sparks shot from her toes. I tried to reason with her. I said, what's a sweet young thing like you doing out here all alone? Then she seemed to go wild. She pulled a surfboard out of the mine and started beating me over the head with it. Take that, you masher, she said, and her eyes glowed like red coals. Suddenly she stopped and said, I love you. Then a chill went up my spine as she started to drag me toward the mine. Let me go, I'd do anything. Then she stopped and said, let me hear you sing. So I gave out with a few bars of Does Your Monkey Do the Dog, which only made matters worse. started the wail at the moon above, then she looked at me and said, I tell you, I'm in love, yeah. Not with me, lady. I tore up the road with a yell and a roar, ran in the house and I locked the door. Now take my advice and don't be a fool. Stay away from that shortcut or you're gonna get caught by Millie the Ghoul. Just a minute, somebody's at the door. I said I'm in love. Oh, no! Let me out of here! Well, we got to wrap this thing up, Frank. Uh, the Dodgers are on, so <laughs> what do we got? One last thing, quick. Uh, in October of 331 B.C., Alexander the Great and his army won the Battle of Guagamela against the Persian forces on a plane 43 kilometers northeast of Mosul in modern-day Iraqi Kurdistan. This led soon after to the complete defeat of the ancient Persians. To mark this date, we have from the Horrible Histories a fitting tribute. So with that, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. Thank you.
Alexander is my name, Macedonia's most famous. Commander, history calls the great, but I prefer the greatest. A king aged only 20 when my dad assassinated. Advisors called for calm, but frankly, peace is overrated. Crushed rebels in Greek city states. So thousands of the martyrs made short labor of my neighbors. And that was just for starters. Alexander, full time firefighter. Made my home more secure, but that wasn't enough. I wanted more, more, more. And so began my master plan to conquer by invasion. Started with dad's enemy, the famous Persian nation. Ruler Darius had far more troops and inconvenience But I want them thrashed Egypt, I'm a military genius Founded Egypt's Alexandria Named for the greatest man alive I was now Pharaoh and King of Persia Not bad for 25 Alexander, victorious Said they wouldn't follow me Guitar solo, Ptolemy Because of me, Ptolemy He'll go far He'll found the dynasty That ends with Cleopatra Then there's Feistian My best friend, of course Unless you come from Cephalus But he's a horse Why the long face, my friend? Anyway, together it was going grand Till heaven Boosie died and my men took a stand I wanted to continue but my hands were tied So I sat in my tent and I cried Three to three BC 